all know, follow a most holy pattern in which he first expounds to his readers and to his hearers sound doctrine. And you say, well, what is sound doctrine? Well, the word sound, when we see this in Scripture, means healthy. It means not diseased, not being in a morbid state, having all the organs complete and in perfect action, literally a sound body, sound health, a sound constitution, a sound man. And so we see this pattern in all of his letters. Again, he, he teaches sound doctrine. And then what he does is he then follows up as the Spirit leads him. He employs application to that doctrine. And again, brethren, you can't have application without sound doctrine because you might be applying it wrong, amen, and we might apply it wrongly and, and do the wrong thing compared to what the Lord God tells us to do. Now, the, to the application, the implementation the utilization, amen, of that sound doctrine in the believer's life is literally what application is. It's putting into practice, brethren, the sound doctrines that one already knows. If you look at that definition, now one reads their Bibles and there's doctrine that we already know. And the applying of that is when the Holy Spirit of God, when he takes the word of God and he collides it, brethren, with your and mine everyday personal living and life. This is literally how it is applied. When he collides the word with our personal lives as we're living this out throughout the, <clears throat> the week, if you will. Now, the doctrinal, personal, and historical applications are habitually found in the text. And again, brethren, this is what one must consider. When we're sitting at home in our quiet place, and we're reading the word of God. You see this as he works this out. It's, it's an amazing, stunning, th stunning thing to behold. As we're reading the text, the application almost all the time is found in the text itself. Let me show you what I mean by that. Again, this is very important as we consider what Paul is continuing to do, as we've seen in First and Second Thessalonians. Doctrine, application. Doctrine, application. This is how we should live when we hear the good, sound, healthy doctrine. Listen to how the Lord Jesus Christ, how he taught and what he said. Listen to this carefully. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. And follow along with me, if you would. You consider there as he says this. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. What is Jesus doing? He's, re he's referring back to historical application. He's going back to Jonah. That's what he's saying. So he says, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, that's historical application, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's doctrinal application. He's speaking of these things right in the text, historically. He's going back to Jonas. Then he says, he's, he's comparing his death, burial, and resurrection to doctrine. This is the gospel. This is what he's saying. Then he continues, The men of Nineveh shall rise in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. Historical. There he is. He's going back again. The historical application. How does it fit? How does it work in my own personal life? This is what we're going to see this morning. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. That's a personal application. So what Jesus did there is he's teaching. He uses historical application of Jonah to reveal a future doctrinal application about his death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel. He used historical, if you will here, and brethren, doctrinal application to call the people to repentance. 
Which again, to turn unto himself, a very personal application. So again, we see it in the text. Historical application, personal application, doctrinal application. This is the idea, brethren, when we consider application. How do I apply the word of God to my own heart and mind? And so too, as I said, it is with Paul, with our text this morning. When we look down into there. Let me just give you another example. The Apostle Paul. He's teaching the men, right? And he says this, and Brother Keith, I I always think about you when I think about this. The Bible never says not to do this and then to do that. It always fills it in with that which is holy. So Paul tells the brethren, don't steal. Don't steal, but work with your own hands. So again, we see a personal and a doctrinal application that's there. It's always filled in, and this is what we see in the text this morning. Look how Paul starts there this morning in chapter 3. Look at verse number 1 as we work our way down through this most holy text. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us. Finally, brethren, pray for us. Again, something that he has said before in the text. Again, as we've seen this, the, the personal application here is what? Paul's asking the brethren, the Christians, to pray for them. That's, that's a personal application. So how do we then do that? Well, we pray for them. Amen? We pray for one another. This is the idea here, this personal application. Finally, he says, which here does not mean finality, but rather the rest. Besides all that, besides what I've just said, remember we saw that last week in our text, besides all that I have just said, that's the word here. It doesn't mean and this is final. He's going to add a whole bunch more before we get to the end of the text. Finally, besides all that, he says, pray for us. Paul here again calls on their family pedigree and common blood ties. Again, how many times has he does it? Brethren, brethren, brethren. And it is the blood ties. It is our common pedigree that we have through who? The Lord Jesus Christ. When we believed on him, that binds us together through his blood. Amen. That's the blood tie that we all have. And he is again calling on the brethren to pray for them, to pray as he does the work of the Lord. In fact, Paul here again, this is a common theme. And again, brethren, as you think about the application of these things, the application again is the Spirit of God colliding with us and the Word of God colliding with us in our hearts and saying, yes, when when a brother asks to pray for me, are we praying for them? That's the question, amen? That's the application. This is what we're talking about here. Again, it just seems so simple, but it's not. Because if it were simple, everybody would be doing it. Amen? The Christians would be doing it as, as a whole, would be doing these things. They would be applying the text, whether it's historical, whether it's personal, or whatever it might be, doctrinal, amen? And brethren, there is a weakness in the church in that. Look at Paul now. He is a consistent record. He, you know, again, as the Spirit of God leads him, the book of Romans is in perfect harmony with 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, on and on it goes. First and 2 Thessalonians, First and 2 Timothy, on and on it goes. There's a constant, if you will, beautiful harmony that the Spirit of God leads Paul to do. I want you to see this. Look at the book of Romans. Flip over there quickly with me, if you would. See this glorious pattern. Look at Romans chapter 15. And again, as we see here, the Apostle Paul has has, uh, asked for a personal application. Brethren, pray for us. And as he does here to the church at Rome, he gives specific reasons why he wants them to pray for them. Look here, if you would, Romans chapter 15. Again, just a couple of examples. There's one after another after another of these sorts of things in Scripture as we, as we know. Look at verse number 29, Romans chapter 15. Look there at verse number 29. Look what Paul says there. 
And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now, I beseech you, brethren. Listen, he beseeches them with what? For the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he's, he's using those blood ties. He's saying, I'm going to beseech you, brethren. I'm going to call on you to pray for these reasons. Again, a personal application. When a brother or sister, that, that's the thing. Again, the three biggest lies in America, you know what they are. Eh? One of them is, I'll pray for you, and you don't pray for them. That is a huge uh, deficit within the family of God. Paul calls here and he says, for the, love of Jesus, for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, listen, and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So again, brethren, this is the application. When we're praying for brothers, all of us, I know, have lost brothers, we have lost sisters, we have lost family, and those sorts of things, brethren. We need to apply this. And the Spirit of God collides the Word of God. And listen, if there's one thing missing, can I say it again, brethren? Because I know I struggle with it too. It is the time we spend in prayer. It is a stunning thing to behold. Our forefathers wouldn't even recognize what we do, I don't think. They were so steeped in prayer and dependent upon God. It was an amazing thing. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, as you know, underneath the, the, the pulpit there where he preached. Think of this, brethren. Every week... 10,000 people, no microphones, no nothing. 10,000 people would gather to hear Charles Spurgeon preach, and other preachers would come. And they say, Brother Spurgeon, what's the secret? And you know what he'd do? You know this. You know history. You, you have to know history. He would take them down underneath where his pulpit was at, and 24 hours a day, now we think, well, how can this be? No, 24 hours a day, there was a man underneath that pulpit praying 24 hours a day. In fact, Spurgeon said, you can tell prayer is a healthometer of your church how they view prayer. Brethren, this is something. We're Americans. We think we can live on our own. We're pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We've got to turn again to, the, to God. We've got to implement and apply these things to pray for one another. Pray for the church. Look what's happening. We, we looked at this, the great apostasy. I am convinced we are in the middle of it. Churches are going off the reservation, closing the word of God, not even preaching the word of God anymore because it's hurtful and it scares people off. Maybe that's why we are like we are. Like I told the ladies this morning, I will never change. You'll have to take me out of here before I ever stop doing something. And if I do, you guys know that I'm losing it. Take me out quickly before I say something unholy or ungodly that would wreck someone's spiritual life. Amen? That's the seriousness. Look what he says there, as you see there. He says, together with me in your prayers to God for me. Look at verse 31. That I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. And again, we're going to see this pattern in our text. He does the same thing. Hey, brothers, brethren, saints in the Lord, pray for us. For him and Silas and Timothy as they are preaching the word of God, because that was always central to what they did. They weren't putting on dog and pony shows. They weren't putting on light shows and bombs and all this stuff that goes off. None of that existed. They would look at the churches for the most part today and go, what is this? You don't find it here anywhere. Nowhere. And that's the thing, right? If you want to be a New Testament church, we should look in the scriptures and go, how were they? What did they do? Just because it's 2,000 years ago, the relevancy of the, of, this, of the church and the relevancy of the preaching, that never changes. But boy, you look around, the compromise, the things that are taking place. And brethren, the prayerlessness, I can't tell you 
again how important it is that we pray as brothers and sisters in the Lord for one another, that the Lord's work would be accomplished and done. Amen? This is what Paul is asking. He's saying, hey, pray for us. Pray for these, these reasons that I said right there. In fact, if you look back at 2 Thessalonians, he, again, he gives us a twofold purpose for why he's asking them to pray, applying that to our lives, brethren. Look there at 2 Thessalonians again. Look at verse 1 and 2. We'll read them together. But I want you to notice again. You see the pattern. Romans 15, same thing. Pray for us. Pray that we will deliver. Pray that the word of God will go forth. Look what he does. A twofold purpose for asking the brethren to pray. Can you think of anything more important to pray about besides the souls of those whom we love than the word of God to go forth? For the word of God to have its free course? And this really, literally, is what our text is about this morning. Look there at verse number one. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may what? Have free course, one, and be glorified, two. This is always the central focus of the preacher is that God should be glorified, the word of God should be glorified, that these things should be lifted on high, that the word of God, when it goes into the heart, it'll do what you and I cannot do. You and I can convert nobody. We have no power to do any of that. It is the word of God by the Holy Spirit of God doing his work. And yet, we're prayerless. It's a stunning thing. Well, I shouldn't say we, all of us, but many of us are lacking in that area. This is what Paul is saying. Brethren, apply this. The application is the Holy Spirit of God colliding his word with us in our daily lives. Now listen here. Look what it says. Even it is, is with you. Verse 2. That we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Now again, brethren, as we consider here, he lays out his twofold purpose for calling the family of God to pray continually. First, he requests prayer for the progress of the word of God. The, the Bible says here that it would have its free course. That term free course is really quite amazing when you consider what he's asking the brethren to pray for. It means to spread rapidly. Literally, to run and to have swift progress all across the world. This is what he's praying for. This is what he's asking the brethren to pray for him for. Pray that the word of God will have its free course, that it'll be run rapid. It'll go absolutely across swiftly and quickly. In fact, we see this concept, <laughs> these truths, again, all through the word of God. In the Old Testament... In the New Testament, there's always the saints praying that the word of God would indeed go swiftly and do its business as the Holy Spirit directs. Look at Psalms 147. Turn there with me if you would. Just take listen to this again. This is, is Psalms in the Old Testament, brother? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Look at Psalms 147. Again, this thought, this truth, this biblical thread that we see over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture, we find here... And the sweet psalmist, as he writes this down, and of course we understand, brethren, don't we, that the Israelites sang this. Wouldn't it be fun to sing some of these psalms like we, we do on occasion? But they were singing this. This is what they were singing. Look at Psalms 147. Look at verse number 11. Look what it says there. The Lord take the pleasure in them that fear him and those that hope in his mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem, uh, God, uh, God of, uh, thy God of Zion. For he hath strengthened the bars of thy gates, and he hath blessed thy children with thee. He maketh peace in thy borders, and filleth thee with the finest of wheat. He sendeth forth his command upon the earth. His word, what? 
runneth very swiftly. There it is again. That's the idea. That's, that's what we're looking for. This is what Paul is asking the brethren to pray that the word of God. You know why, brethren? Again, you think of our founding fathers. You think of Daniel Webster. You think of Noah Webster. And I've said this before. Daniel Webster, you know what Daniel Webster said? When he read the Constitution, he looked at it, and he, and he was concerned. You know what he was concerned about? That the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't specifically mentioned in the Constitution. There's God Almighty, which we believe the God of the Scripture, and we know that most of those men were Christians, but not all of them. And it's an amazing thing. He said this. He said, brethren, listen, if the Lord Jesus Christ is not preached the length, the depth, the width, and the height of our nation... We are doomed, basically. I'm going to paraphrase that. And again, that's what he was concerned about. And this is the thing that we must be concerned about. Not that the dog and pony show goes on, that fake Christians are everywhere, that they believe and they're not believers. All this stuff that goes on. We must be concerned with the truth. We must be concerned with what the truth of God does to you and it does to me. It is powerful. It changes the heart. It's the only thing that can. Nothing else can. And again, let me just use an example. Stole it from Elder Dean. Amen. You remember when he was teaching about the Bible and really the narrow-mindedness of Scripture. And he said what happens is men will read the Scriptures and they'll start out here and then they move away a little bit. And then they, somebody, the, Re the Re Reformation comes, Reformation comes, and they, they bring it back, but they're not all the way back. And then men will fade again farther away. And then they'll come back, but not quite as far as they did the first time. And by the time it's all done, the slow burn has taken place. And people don't even know what the Word of God says. It's an amazing, stunning thing. I remember, brethren. I'm old now, but I, I do remember some things. I remember, you'll notice, we don't have altar calls here. We don't do that. We feel if the Lord God is calling you, you will come. Amen? But let me give you an example why we don't do it. Because a few years ago, we had somebody here that was, and, and, that was here singing, and they had a kind of a gospel music thing going on. It was, it was wonderful. It really was. But then he had an altar call at the end. And, you know, I'm going, wait, 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 wait what's going on here? And a couple of the young men came forward, came up here. I was standing up here. And I asked him, I said, why are you coming? Why are you coming here? Well, I want to get saved. Well, can you tell me just real quickly what the gospel is? Nope. What is he coming to? Was he coming to himself? What was he coming? When you can't explain the gospel, brethren, if it hasn't been clearly preached, 1 Corinthians, if you want to know what it is, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 10, that Jesus, what? He died according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures, that he rose again according to the scriptures. Those are the truths that one must put their faith in. He came forward to nothing. Because he did not understand the gospel. What was that man going to lead him to? No, brethren. I told him, I said, no, 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 son. We'll meet tomorrow. We'll talk. We'll see if you understand what you're doing. And this is what happens. If it doesn't get intercepted, you have a bunch of people running around who think they're saved and they're not. They did not come to Christ. They did not come to the gospel. They came to something else. And again, brethren, this is the issue. This is why... We are so careful here. You must be careful. We must pray that the word of God has its course freely and quickly. That is what we must pray for. Those are the things we must trust in. And that's exactly what the text 
teaches us. Look at John chapter 20. Again, just a New Testament example of, of having its free course. The gospel going swiftly across and touching people's lives and hearts. Look there, if you would, at John chapter 20. Again, the idea Paul is asking us to pray for and ask them to pray for and we should pray for is that the gospel would swiftly move. Same words, same terminology. It's not hard to understand. Again, this is practical application. This is, this is real life. Look at chapter 20. Look at verse number 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was dark unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she what? Runneth. There it is. That, simply that's what it means. Swiftly. Look there if you will. And cometh, and cometh to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple came to the sepulcher. So they ran, that's the idea, both together. And the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. The idea here is swiftly running, speedily, quickly, may the gospel spread across like that. This is what Paul is asking them to pray for. Now, brethren, listen. Not only did he pray to have the word of God have its free course, to run it swiftly and quickly, he prayed also, brethren, that if you will, that the word of God would be glorified. Glorified. That it would be magnified. That the word of God literally, brethren, this is what it means. That the word of God would be glorified. It literally, that a proper opinion is given and its importance and power be given to Christ. This is the idea again. When, it, when the word of God is glorified, it's having a proper biblical understanding of what the gospel is. Again, brethren, you can't come to the gospel if you don't know what the gospel is. Same thing I do when I marry people. Same thing. The first thing in my premarital questionnaire for them is, in a short sentence, tell me what the gospel is. And if you can't do that, your home is not going to be regulated by the gospel. It is not going to be if you don't even know what it is. Again, should I beat a dead horse? Yes. You know why? Because Paul did over and over and over again. Know the gospel. Believe the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. First for the Jew, then for the Greek. For the scripture saith, Habakkuk, an Old Testament text, the just shall live by faith. And this is the idea. Again, the preaching of the gospel and believing the gospel. That the word would indeed be magnified, that it would be given its importance and power and credit. Look at Psalms 138. Let's just look there again. The, the idea here, again, is a constant thread, a constant truth throughout the scriptures. Mike, why are you harping on the Bible? Because, again, the application's in the text. How do I apply this? We read the text and say, okay, that's what the Spirit of God is asking me to do when it collides with my thoughts. That's what changes us, brethren. This is what makes us different. Look at verse number one. Again, keeping the idea that the word of God would be glorified, that it would be magnified, that it would be given its proper credit and power. Look at verse number one. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. What is David saying? What gods? Well, the gods that were there, that were surrounding Israel, all of the false gods, every one of them, 
There's only one true God, brethren. This is the reality. There's only one. What did, what did, uh, uh, what did, what does the book of Acts chapter 4 verse 12 say? For there's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. There's one God, one true God, the God of holy scripture. And, da- and what David is doing here, he says, I'm going to praise the true God before all of the gods, all these fake gods that are surrounding all the nations around Israel. And he says this, I will sing praise unto thee, verse 2, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy knowledge or for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast, there's the word, magnified thy word above thy name. This is the reality, brother. And again, this is why we preach verse by verse, Bible by Bible by Bible. You don't need to hear what I have to say. I can't save you. I can't do it. You can't save yourself. Only the power of the word of God, as the spirit of God works through that, can you be saved. It's an amazing. This is what Paul is praying. Isn't this what we should be praying? I pray it for people who I know, my work people who, who I work in my business who are lost. I pray that the word of God would infect them. That it would indeed move and work as it should. Look at Acts chapter 13. Just a couple of them here that the word of God would be magnified, that it would be glorified. Look at Acts chapter 13. And again, we see the power of God, the working of God here in this particular text. Look there at verse number 46. Acts chapter 13. Look at verse number 46. Look what the Bible says. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It is necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, But seeing that ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. Now listen to verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, what did they do? He's listening, they're listening to Paul. What do they do? And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. That's what they did. The word of the Lord is lifted high. The power to save the Gentiles. They said they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Paul understood over and over again. It wasn't Paul. It was Paul, an instrument whom God is using to preach the gospel, the word of God, that it may flow freely across. Let me show you one more. Look at Titus chapter 2. This is really important for us, brethren, as we consider this. Is a Christian supposed to look different than the world? Is a Christian supposed to look different than the world? Yes, we are. <laughs> Absolutely, positively. Remember, we've seen Paul over again, sanctified. We've been set apart. We are to look different, smell different, act different than the world. And look what Paul writes here in Titus chapter 2. Again, this is important, brethren. We see here... The power and the purpose of the gospel is to transform lives. This is what it does. Now listen carefully. Titus chapter 2, look at verse number 10. Not purloining, stealing, but showing, do you see, all good fidelity, that they may adorn, this is the idea here again, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Again, the idea here that the word of God would be glorified. How is the word of God adorned here? 
The word of God is adorned through the believer who's been saved and had a changed and transformed life. He doesn't look like them anymore. He doesn't act like them anymore. And again, brethren, this is what's missing. I heard someone say this morning, we are odd here. We have an odd church because we're all supposed to be a little peculiar. And that doesn't mean weird. It means a special treasure unto God set apart for his holy work. And instead, so often, brethren, we do not adorn the gospel of Christ like we should. That is a showing forth of the transformed life. What Christ has done, what the Spirit of God has done. And brethren, let me tell you, over the last year, as I said last week and I said this morning in Bible study, four of my closest friends have all fallen. Morally, and different things like that, brethren. And we must adorn the gospel. We must indeed ask God to keep us in a good place. Amen? Which is what Paul does. That's exactly what he does in the text. That they may adorn to show the beauty of, to give credit to the gospel, to the doctrine of our Savior. Now look at what he does again here. So he's praying again that the word of God would have free course, that it would indeed, that it would be glorified amongst the pagans, through the believers. Look what he does now. Look what he asks to pray for. Not only that, look at the next thing he prays for here. Look at 2 Thessalonians again there. Verse number 2. The Bible says, well, I'm just going to read it, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Do you see what he prayed for there? He's asking the brethren to pray. That those who are preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God, would be delivered from wicked men. He's praying that it, would be, that it would go across the earth swiftly. He's praying that it would be glorified. And then he turns it to themselves and says, Lord, pray for us that the preachers of the gospel will be delivered and protected in safety from the evil and wicked men. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? He asked the brethren to pray for the safety of those who are preaching the word of God. That word delivered that's used there literally means rescued. It means to be dragged out of harm's way from those unreasonable and wicked men who did not have faith. You ask, who are the unreasonable and wicked men? Well, the scripture tells us over and over again, but I'll tell you again. These were those unbelievers, mostly Jewish, who were in perpetual state of fighting against God and trying to hinder the progress of his word. We saw it when we went through the book of Acts over and over again. These unbelieving Jews who constantly, in fact, Paul, Peter, how many times does he say it? You're fighting against God. And this is what they're doing. This is what Paul, again, is addressing. Those who are trying to counter and hinder the gospel of Christ. In fact, when we see this, again, brethren, this is to edify the saints. It's to draw us to repentance if we need to repent of what's happening. But this is what the word of God does. The practical application, it does all of those things to us. In fact, let me show you here Paul again, as he is deeply concerned with being delivered. Now, this doesn't mean, brethren, that we're not going to have evil, that evil could not possibly come on. We all know that. The world is what? Full of trouble. Amen. As we said earlier in Bible study this morning, Job wrote it twice, that men are born of trouble and the sparks fly upward. He's not saying that nothing bad's going to happen. What he's saying, though, is, is this. Again, that the word of God is glorified and that they, as preachers of the gospel, would be delivered 
from evil. I want you to see the security of this. Look at Paul again in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse number 9. I want you to see this. He says, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves, <laughs> that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. Do you see again the Apostle Paul? Think of a man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, who was led by the Spirit of God these ways. He says this, We had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. Look at verse number 10. I want you to see the past, present, and future deliverance that's there in verse number 10. Who delivered us from so great a death. That's the past. In other words, we see the security, the protection of the preacher of God, and the man of God, and the woman of God who's preaching the gospel. From so great a death. Look at the second thing. We see the present. And doth deliver. So he, God delivered him in the past. He's currently delivering. And look at here. Off into the future, brethren, in this text. Look at there. In whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. The idea here, again, is the Lord God watching over and delivering those who are his. Not that something evil can happen. People die every day. Things happen in our lives. Trouble comes into it. That's not what he's saying. He's just simply stating the truth that preach the gospel. The Lord God is indeed going to, has delivered us, will deliver us, and is constantly and presently delivering us. This again is what Paul is praying for. Listen to Paul's almost last inspired words. Turn to 2 Timothy there with me if you would. Now, brethren, again, when you consider what Paul writes here, Historically, you have to understand, this is the end of Paul's life. He already knows, he already knows that uh, his, his end is near. He talks about fighting the good fight, keeping the faith, all of these things. He talks more than that, brethren, listen. He talks about all those who were with him, who have, who have left him. Basically, Paul, at the end of his ministry, consider this for a moment. The Apostle Paul, again, when you think about this, and I, I, Wendy and I have talked about this a lot. Almost every person abandoned the Apostle Paul at the end of his life. Can, can, you, can you get a hold of that? Can you grasp what that means? And as he finishes up here, his last inspired words, he talks about, watch out for this guy. He did me much harm. He departed. He left. And he's going on and on talking about the men who left him, who were in ministry with him. And he was then left almost completely alone. And then, brethren, he says this. The last, some of the last inspired words. Look at verse number 17. He's concerned earlier in the text. Bring the books, the parchments. He says those are the word of God that he was working on, the Old Testament that he was reading, the New Testament that he was writing. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his work. Verse 15, he warns them. He says, of whom be thou aware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. There is hindering the word of God. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Look at verse 17. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. You see that there again, brethren. This is the idea. The Apostle Paul, everybody's forsaken him. He's there alone. He had to stand alone, kind of like Martin Luther did and some of these great men in church history, some of the great Baptists of the past, stood alone, standing there, firm and solid and sound in the word of God. 
sticking to the biblical truths. It's an amazing thing. In fact, again, you see that. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me, strengthened me, and that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles listen might hear. And I was delivered past out of the mouth of the lion. Listen, verse 18, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. He's again talking about the past deliverance and the future one yet to be. And he's fully trusting in what God is doing as he's standing there alone. It's an amazing thing, brethren, what the gospel will do. People say, well, the gospel, the word of God is divisive. Yeah, yeah, it is. You realize it's designed to do that. Actually, it's designed to do two things at once. Really, what it does, it divides truth from error. And you know what it does at the same time simultaneously? It brings those who believe the truth together. It divides on one hand, brings together on the other hand. So false liars, false prophets, false teachers, all these things, it separates out those and it draws those who are true believers together. Isn't it an amazing simultaneous thing that the Word of God does? It's kind of like one pastor said, right? The same sun that melts butter hardens clay. It's an amazing thing. It does two things simultaneously. This is what the Word of God does. It separates truth from error, and it draws those who are believers together. This is what it's designed to do, yes. Didn't Jesus himself say, Think not that I have not come to bring division? Who did he bring division to? The family. And it was, he, was, it, was it a mean, nasty thing? No, it was an eternal thing. I've come to divide... Father against son, and mother against daughter, and child against child. And all that is, he's depicting the separation that he brings. One believes and one doesn't. One's saved and one's lost. This is the truth. This is the reality. This is what the Word of God does. It simultaneously does these things. That's why Paul here is so concerned that they are indeed glorifying the Word of God and being faithful to the Word of God. Now look back there at our text. Look there if you would. We'll read verses 3, 4, and 5 together. He's praying to be delivered from these unreasonable men and wicked men, for they, not have, they, don't, they don't have faith. But look at verse 3. Look how that starts. There's that word, but, again. Have you ever noticed how many times Paul uses that word, but? We saw it last week as he was making a contrast between the, the child of the devil and the child of God, which is what he was doing, those who followed the man of sin, those who followed Christ. He, but, not like that. Look at what he says here. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. Do you see the application there? This is what Paul is saying. What we're teaching you is good doctrine, is healthy, sound doctrine, and we pray that the Lord will again, that you will keep and do those things. That's the application. Look at what he says. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. There it is again. They're living again. You remember every verse or every chapter of First and Second Thessalonians, the second coming of Christ is the theme. And they're living in the light of that. Paul's saying, while we're waiting for Christ to come, this is how, again, the word of God applies to us. It's an amazing, isn't it? He, with the word but, transitions from men who are faithless and what they will do to you to faithful God and what he will do. Do you see that, brethren? He uses that word but. 
It's a transition from what men who do not have faith are trying to do to you versus what God is going to do to you and for you. He says here that the faithful Lord, our God, and he will accomplish these things in them. He will establish them. The word literally means to fix, to settle them in a state of permanence, to make them firm. He will keep them from evil again, as we have seen here. God, brethren, listen, he will faithfully guard his sheep from the inside, which as we see in verse 5, he's talking about the inside of the man. Look at what it says there. The Lord direct your hearts. That's the inner man. The Lord God will guard his sheep from in and from out. And again, brethren, this is a good, sound, secure place to be in the Lord. Amen? This is what we see. It's an amazing thing. The Lord will establish you. He will faithfully guard you, both on the inside and on the outside. Again, look at Psalms 121, just a couple of portions of Scripture here, and we'll be finished. But again, it's sweet to hear the Word of God. It's good to hear it ringing in our ears. The child of God should be glorifying God and glorifying His Word, saying, Yes, Lord, may we hear more. Not more outside Scripture, more in Scripture. <laughs> again, as we were talking this morning, why are people looking for more? I don't understand it. I, I will never understand it. Why we're looking for more when we got all we could ever handle here within the pages of sacred scripture. I will never understand it. I will never will. I will never get it. Why people close their Bibles and want more outside of it. Brethren, listen to what Paul is teaching. Listen to what the word of God is saying to us. How glorious it should ring in our ears, these truths. I don't need any of that outside noise. I can't hear that good anymore anyway. But listen, he protects us inside and outside. He preserves us. Look here at Psalms 121, a glorious portion of Scripture. Look at verse number 1. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved, he that keepeth thee will not slumber. And again, the word there is the same word in the Greek Septuagint that Paul uses. Preserve, to keep. This is a glorious truth for you and I, brethren. Listen to that. He doesn't use it once. I want you to see this. Uh, that he keepeth he, uh, them, uh, thee will not slumber. Verse 4. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Look at verse 5. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee. There's the same word. Keep, 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 preserve. This is the Lord preserving the sheep of God, both inside and outside. Look at here. Verse 8. Well, let me finish verse 7. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. Do you see the inner and outer man there? All thy ways, the steps, the way you walk. That's the outer man. He will preserve you, he says, in thy soul. That's the inner man. He will keep you, protect you, preserve you in a most holy way. Look at verse 8. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. The eternal keeping of God for those who are saved is a most glorious belief and doctrine. It is a most glorious truth, brethren, that we must apply. 
We must apply it to our lives. The Spirit of God must reach deep down inside of us and apply this truth. That's the application right in the text. That's the amazing truth about all of this. In fact, in Jude, well, look at Jude chapter 1. Again, just a couple of them here. That's Old Testament. Just, again, you, 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 you see these things. You see the continuity. You see the thread. God never changes. God is the same today, tomorrow, yesterday, past, present, future, eternally. And so his word teaches us that. Look at verse number 1. Look at Jude chapter 1, or verse number 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. There's that word again, the, the holiness of God, preserving and keeping his people. Now look over quickly at verses 24 and 25. Just He opens the letter. Those of us who are preserved, those of us who are indeed established and kept. Look at verses 24 and 25. Now unto, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. The, the, uh, to the only wise God and Savior be glory and majesty and dominion, power both now and forever. Amen. God will preserve his sheep, those who are truly his. He will preserve you within, he'll preserve you without, and he does it by way of the word of God with the Holy Spirit of God working and applying that to you. This is how it works. God is faithful. He will keep us both on the inside and the outside. Now what I want to do this morning as I bring this to a close, I want you guys to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to again close kind of the way that I opened it. Again, I want you to see the historical, the personal, and the, and, the, uh, and the doctrinal application that's in this text. This, brethren, again, is a great learning lesson for us. How do I apply the word of God? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 11. I want to read it, and I want you to follow along. And I want you to see this, again, this constant pattern of the application in the text. Look there at verse number one. Paul says, Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things. That's personal. Do you see that there? What's the application? We should not lust after these things. Amen? That's a personal application. If you're having trouble with lust, we need to ask the Spirit of God to please help us to not be lustful. That's the application. Look at the historical. What does he do? He goes back to the word of God. He goes back to the history. Look what he says. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things. That's personal application. As they also lusted, historical. He's taking us back. Look what they did. Look what the nation of Israel did. And if you understand what's going on in that text, brethren, he keeps referring back to what that which Moses wrote. So there's doctrinal application all through this. Let us continue. He starts again here. Neither... Be idolaters, that's personal. As were some of them, as is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. That's historical and doctrinal. Do you see what he's doing there? This, the application's right here in the text. Neither, 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 historical, personal, doctrinal. Continue on. Again. Neither let us commit fornication. That's personal as some of them have committed and fell one day uh, three and 20,000. 
That's historical. Again, going back and doctrinal. He's going back to what Moses wrote. Do you see the personal application? Neither do these things. Don't be fornicators. Don't be idolaters as they were. Historical. And then he brings it around to a very personal application to us. Look at verse, the next verse. Neither let us tempt Christ, personal, us, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Historical and doctrinal again. He goes back to what Moses wrote. All through this text. Look at the next verse. Neither murmur ye, personal, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Historical. He's taking them back again. Do you see this? Do you see how important this is? People are always asking me, what's the application? The application is in the text. The application is the Holy Spirit of God colliding with your life with the Word of God and causing you to be personal in your application. Let us finish. Neither murmur ye personal, as some of them also did as murmured, and were destroyed of the destroy historical. Now look at verse, the next verse. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples. That's historical. <laughs> He's taking us back. I know you're probably getting tired. He's boring now. No, this is so important. It is historical. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans? He said, I've written these things what? so that we might learn. We might learn these things. And they are written for your admonition, personal, historical, personal in that text, upon whom the ends of the world are come, doctrinal, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's amazing, isn't it, brethren, when you consider the depth of the Word of God, just how useful, how needful, how important it really is to us. This is what Paul is praying. Oh, Lord, oh, brethren, pray for us. Pray for me and Timotheus and Silas that the Word of God may have free course, that it may speedily and swiftly move across, and that when it does that, that it will be glorified as people look and see the power and the change in that person as they adorn it for the world to see. You see this? This is a glorious thing, how it all fits together. It all is important and comes together in the life of the Christian. The doctrinal, as I have said, Paul always taught good sound doctrine, so that when he would refer to the history, then that personal application would be applied by the power of the Spirit of God. I like what one preacher said as we close. One of the greatest evidences of the preservation of Scripture is the principle of three applications. Listen. Let us not settle for just one or two applications of Holy Writ. Our God meant His Word for far more than that. Think of that, brethren, as we look again at the text. The personal application this morning the historical application, the doctrinal application, all of these things, brethren. Again, as this pastor said, let us not settle for just one or two. Let us ask the Spirit of God to imply and apply all three, that we might learn from the Word of God. Amen? Ultimately, in the end, brethren, it is the Lord who will keep you, preserve you. He will cause you to walk in His ways. Amen? If you're not a child of his and you're living like the world and you look like the world, you better do what Paul said. You better examine yourself. You may have made a false profession. You may be deceived into thinking that you're saved and you're not. If you're living like the world, acting like them, no change has taken place. Now, do we sin and fall? Yes. But you know what, the, you know what, this, you know what this child of God does? When the child of God sins and falls, 
unless you're perfect, and I haven't met anybody yet, and I certainly am not. And you know what the child of God does? He applies the word of God through the conviction of the word of God, and he gets back up, and he keeps right on walking. He keeps trusting in the Lord and what the Lord is doing. He might trip and fall again, but he gets back up again, and then the Spirit of God won't let him go. However, if you're not a child of God, he will let you go. Your life will not change. You'll look the same. You'll smell the same. There will be no change. And brethren, that is impossible. For the gospel is indeed the power of God unto salvation. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the word of God. I'm reminded of what a pastor once said, A.W. Tozer. He died in 1963. And I remember listening to one of his sermons, and he was lamenting that the meetings were small and people weren't coming. Other people were lamenting, where are the people? Now, brothers, this is 1963. He died in 63. It was just a hair before that. He was preaching a meeting. And he got up and he told the, uh, the small assembled group, Brethren, when God is the only attraction, very few will come. And Father, we thank you for those words of wisdom, that faithful man. Help us, Father, to be faithful in the word. Help us to keep you as the center of our affections. That Whatever the world's doing, let him do it. We'll preach the gospel and we'll pray like these men prayed. That the gospel, the word of God, would indeed have its free course in them. That it would indeed sink deep down into their ears. But Father, may we not be a part of it. We are of the world, but not in the world. Well, we're in the world and not of it, I should say. Father, teach us that. The Spirit of God will tell us that. If we're being disobedient in certain areas of our lives, we pray that you'll correct us. Oh, yes, we read in Scripture, and this is the beauty of it again. We think of the church at Corinth, all the things that were going on with the brethren in that church. It was, it's a stunning thing to behold. You literally had, if I could say this in a very kind way, you had a man who was with his father's wife. He was disciplined. You had men who were fighting and arguing and gossiping and taking each other to court. All of these things. These are things that we all struggle with and fall in sometimes. Father, we pray you'll help us. Help us to repent. Help us to turn. Dross it off of us, O Lord. Heat us up if need be. Take those impurities from us. Make us more and more into the image of Christ. That the world might see the adorning of the power of the gospel of Christ. As one pastor said, there's, there's nothing weaker. We sing and sang there's power in the blood. Well, there's nothing that says there's no power in the blood like one who claims to be a Christian and lives like the devil. Father, we pray you'll help us to repent, 
to turn and to be holy and as you are holy. Father, now we ask as we gather around the Lord's table, we will examine our own hearts, our own minds, our own lives according to Scripture that we might indeed consider how glorious it is that you would send your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf, to rise again from the dead. And when we believe on him, we are saved, securely preserved and kept by the power of God. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. All right.